0: Let's just get something out of the way right away. The last name is Quick. And you have to understand that's a really unfortunate name for a preacher. Because it tends to raise people's expectations. Which I tend to disappoint. And, uh, so it, it really is unfortunate. Uh, I need to tell you just a little bit of my backstory. I uh, grew up in PG County and went to Oxon Hill High School, went to the University of Maryland, where I met Christ through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, hey, Crusader over there. Praise the Lord. And uh, I was a narcotics dealer at the time. So the grace of God that... He has shown to me to even have me here before you today. I, I always go back to the fact that, you know, I'm just a drug dealer. And everything else that's good that's flowed from my life is the grace of God. I have followed University of Maryland Sports, though, my wife and I actually have season tickets to the women's basketball games and uh, we go there. And I remember when we moved back to Maryland from Toronto, Canada in the year 2000, Gary Williams was still the basketball coach of the men's and soon after led them to the national championship. And I was moving from pastoral ministry into the seminary, having led my church in Toronto through a healing process that actually has become the basis Uh, for my ministry now. And so when I came to seminary and moved into kind of the academia, I began to listen carefully to people I considered master teachers. And Gary Williams was one of those. Uh, I always would, in watching Gary Williams, uh, would think that, man, I, I wouldn't mind being a player on the floor, but I sure wouldn't want to be on the bench. Uh, if he used to chew those guys out about what was going on on the floor, but he would turn and, and do that. But, but Gary was a master teacher in that he never wanted the blue chip player. He always wanted kind of the second tier player that maybe wasn't recruited as highly. And he saw his coaching skill in developing these guys that maybe weren't going to be one and done. And just keep them for four years and keep developing their skills. And he was a master at it. So when Gary talked about teaching, I listened. And here's the way he described the process of taking a young athlete that would come into his program and how he would develop them. He'd say when they come in as freshmen, they were often big fish in little ponds. And so they thought they knew a lot about basketball. And so part of what I needed to do in the early days of practice was kind of unlearn them of all the things that they thought they knew. And then begin to mold them into a player that could play on this team of guys. And that may mean a different role than they've had before. And when they start actually practicing, I expect to see kind of every day some progress in their level of play. And then we play a couple exhibition games, and however they've practiced, I expect to see them pick up their level of play again. And then when the games count, I expect to see another step up in their level of play. And then when the – that was back when they were in the ACC – when they entered the ACC conference season, however they've played in the non-conference games, they have to raise their level of play yet again. And if we should be fortunate enough to make the NCAA tournament – they are going to have to raise their level of play again. They cannot stay at the level that they were playing at. They have to raise their level of play. And he says, and that's what we try to teach these students. And I listened to him talk about that, and I thought, you know, that really describes the Christian life pretty well, too. That in a very real sense, when it comes to our faith, Our faith is to be something that is progressing all the time. That we are to be taking steps up in our level of faith. We're not to kind of plateau in our faith. And we all know that we run into things that become challenges to our faith. That can sometimes put a ceiling on our faith. I can trust God for this, but I'm not sure I can trust him for that. And... So, growing in our faith is probably one of the most important challenges that we recognize. And today I want to talk about taking your faith at whatever level of faith you are and raising it to the next level. In fact, if it were possible today, if it were possible where you sit, before you go out whatever door you exit out of, to take whatever level your faith is at, to take it to the next level. If that were possible today, how many of you would be interested in that? Raise your hand. Okay, that's about seven-eighths of you. And that eighth that didn't raise their hand says, I don't raise my hand for anything in church because you never know what that guy's going to ask you to do. So, but I'm guessing that if you're here today and you're serious about your relationship with God, that that, if it were possible, you'd be interested in that. Well, I want to turn you to a passage of scripture that I think teaches us what's necessary. And it's kind of a surprising passage. It's found in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. And... Before we look into this passage together, I'm going to ask you to just join me before the throne one more time in prayer. And uh, seek the Lord's voice in our hearts today. Would you pray with me? As we open your word now, Lord, we have been bombarded this week with messages from human beings on a variety of subjects that have sought to grab and hold our attention to sell us things, to persuade us of points of views. And we now have, in this brief time, a chance to hear from you. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use my gifts to encourage your people here, that we would hear your voice clearly to us, and that you would find our hearts responsive to whatever you say. We just ask you to do that now and glorify your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke 17 comes at a time in the Gospel of Luke where it actually goes back to chapter 9. The end of chapter 9 where it says around verse 51-52 that Jesus... Turned his face, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke writes that so that we would know that the things that follow in the chapters that follow are in the light of Jesus now headed toward the cross. And if you've got a red letter edition like I do in my ESV and you just flip through those chapters back to chapter nine, you'll see a lot of red. Because Jesus is now preparing his disciples, for the time when he leaves the planet. And he comes to the beginning of chapter 17, and he's talking about things that cause people to sin or stumbling blocks. And he says to his disciples, he's teaching them, he says, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And then he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, I always like to picture the disciples listening to Jesus as he's teaching them, you know, kind of intense uh, upon his uh, messages and lessons. And so they hear this, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And I, I think they start nodding their heads. They go, you know, as, as long as I get to rebuke him, if he repents, I'll forgive him. So they're going, yeah, okay, next lesson, Jesus, we got that one. I don't think Jesus ever liked to see them nodding as if they really understood what he was saying, because seldom did they. And so here, I think Jesus raises it up a level. In fact, he actually raises it up seven levels. And he says in verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now I picture their brows furrowing in concern as they think about what that would look like. So their brother comes and slaps him on the cheek and goes, oh, I am so sorry. Can you forgive me? And then maybe a little while later, an hour later, comes up and socks him in the stomach and says, I'm having a terrible day. Can you forgive me? And then maybe a couple hours later comes up and kicks him in the shin and says, oh, if you just saw the way my wife talked to me this morning, you'd understand, can you can you possibly forgive me? I'm having a rotten day. And then a little later on comes and stabs him in the back. And you know, after about four of these in the day, you're beginning to wonder about the sincerity of the apology. And Jesus says, if he does it seven times in a day, and return seven times, repenting, forgiven. The disciples, we know, struggled with forgiveness. Forgiving one another. How much do I need to do? Isn't it good that we've evolved past that? <laughs> that we don't have trouble with this. But they did. They struggled to forgive their brothers when they sinned against them. So they are, I think, feeling like they have just bumped up against a commandment that Jesus has issued that is beyond their faith. And I think it's the basis for the cry that we hear. In verse 5. Interestingly, Luke uses the high mucky muck title for them here. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, for us to do what you have just commanded us to do. Takes more faith than we've got. We've got faith but we obviously need more to keep that commandment. And maybe you've, again, felt that with regard to commandments that Jesus has issued. Some of you may have struggled with that when it came to the idea of a tithe. A tenth? A tenth? A tenth of my income? Are we talking net or are we talking gross here? You know, how, how much? Witness? 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 To, I'm supposed to talk to people about my faith? To share the God? I, I can't talk to myself in the mirror. I mean, how am I going to do that? So we, we come up against things that, that we hear Jesus commanding. And we think, man, that's beyond our faith. We need more. And that's exactly where the disciples are. Well, I think Jesus hears this cry. Increase our faith. And I think he smiles and he says, okay, you guys think that you guys have faith and you just need some more to keep this command. Let's ponder for a moment how big your faith actually is. So he turns and he points. He says, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, smallest seed in the field, he would later say, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted. And plant it in the sea, and it would obey you. And then I think Jesus got quiet. And the twelve turned their eyes to that mulberry tree, and went, trying to get it to move. Just move. All twelve of them. And it's not moving. If you had faith like a mustard seed. See, they thought they had some faith, just needed some more. Jesus says, you have no concept how small your faith actually is. We're talking subatomic here. We're talking quark size, you engineers and physicists. We're talking really small. So the reality is they think they have some and need more. They really really have just a little tiny bit. So I think Jesus is somewhat amused by this increase our faith cry. But then he gives them a parable, I think, that was intended to provide what they needed to grow their faith. But it's a strange parable. Buckle your seatbelt. As he says, beginning in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline a table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare my supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank this servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you have done all the things that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have, done, we have only done what was our duty. And I think the ESV kind of interprets the actual original language here. The original language says, we have only done what we ought to have done. We have only done what we ought to have done. Well, this is really a strange little story that Jesus tells, and we gotta think about it. We gotta paint the picture. So he describes two servants. One's plowing and one's keeping sheep. So we'll do the keeping sheep first. So here's the guy gets up in the morning, the servant in the household. And he goes out to the sheep fold and he's got to get those sheep moving because they are not the smartest animal in the animal kingdom. And so he's got to, got to get them moving out of the sheep pen. And he finally gets them kind of going and closes the pen door and he leads them out. And he has to find, because this is an arid land, he has to find a little patch of grass and some water that these sheep can feed by and he has to watch them all day long and of course it's hot the sun is beaten down and he can't fall asleep because sheep are stupid they go wandering off and there are predators around just looking for A lamb or a sheep that wanders off. So he's got to keep his eye on him and he's going to go running after him if they start to wander off. And he does that all day long in the hot sun. And at the end of the day, he finally kind of gets them moving back toward the sheep pen. He gets them in, he gets kind of them bedded down for the night, comes out of the sheep pen, locks the door, comes wandering into the house. Or the second guy is the guy who plows. So he goes out in the morning, he gets that heavy yoke and he sets it on the oxen. He hooks up the plow to it and he goes out and again... This is an arid land. It's hot and he is kind of plowing. If you've seen pictures of Israel or if you've been to Israel, it's rocky. So he's got to keep hauling rocks out of the field. He's doing this back and forth all day long in the hot sun. At the end of the day, he comes and he puts the ox in the pen. He hangs up the yoke and he comes into the house. And the master says, don't even think about sitting down. I want you to clean yourself up because you smell like a goat. And then I want you to fix my dinner. And then I want you to stand here while I eat and drink. And then afterwards you can eat and drink. And oh by the way, don't expect me to thank you. And I got a question for you. That inspire your faith. Some of you women are going, "Man, that sounds like my life." Gosh, I, I get up and I go to work and, you know, brave the drive and, you know, the crazy people on the road. And I work all day long and I, I have to drive back and I walk into the house and say, hey, Mom, what's for dinner? And I got to go fix dinner. And man, as soon as dinner is over, they've down, pew, they all disappear. And I'm left with a big stack of dishes and nobody thanks you. And as Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? Inspire your faith? i got to think, what's, what's Jesus saying here? And some of you who may work in a service ministry industry, been in the military, might think, this is duty. It's about duty, doing your duty. I'm not sure that's it. In fact, I didn't really begin to understand this until I be, moved from being a pastor to being a professor. Because when you go into a classroom, sometimes the dynamic is, you know, you're going over the course at the very beginning of of a semester, and they've got their syllabus out, and they're looking at it, and you get somebody, you know, who raises their hand and goes, professor. Now, Albert wasn't like this, I'll just tell you that, but (laughs) that professor, what do I have to do to get a B in here? Or while I'm lecturing, somebody raise their hand, professors, is it going to be on the exam? Do I need to be taking notes on this? drives you crazy as a teacher. Any of you teachers here? You know what this is like. We got, you know, students that are just, you know, what's the minimum standard I've got to do in here? So we got some young people here who are probably still in school. You want you want your teacher to faint? You want to watch your teacher faint? Here's what you do. After they've lectured, after they've taught you something, go up afterwards. Do it while no other kids are around so they don't think you're trying to, you know, get a higher grade or something by doing this. But just go up and say, teach, that was absolutely fascinating. Is there like an extra book I could read on it? Is there like an extra assignment I could do? I just love this stuff. And you just make it so int- can, can, can Can you give me something like extra I could do? And you will watch them faint. <laughs> because most students are looking for the minimum standard. What's the minimum I've got to do to get by? Unfortunately, Christians often view their Christian life that way. So how much time do I need to spend in prayer to not have some major temptation overtake me this week? 15 minutes a day? (gasps) 15 minutes? I got to pray? So you sit down to pray and you know, you're, you know, doing that kind of thing, you know, and trying to, you know, and you're going through a, a prayer list and your eyes are crossing and Or you know, Bible. How much of the Bible do I need to read? A a chapter. So you you start in Leviticus and you start to read, and and you know again your eyes are crossing. You could you 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 read so you read your chapter and you get to the end and you have no idea what you just read. But it's a chapter. That's the minimum standard. You got to read. You got a chapter. Fifteen minutes of prayer and a chapter a day. It's like what's the minimum standard? What's the minimum standard? And we live our lives, our Christian lives, thinking, what's the minimum standard? Instead of thinking, how do I take this to the next level? So I think Jesus gives us this little parable here about the two servants to teach us about romance. See, romance. I missed that verse. Where was that verse? But I think you ladies, I'll pick on you for just a moment. You ladies understand this. If your husband or your boyfriend, hopefully they're the same guy, uh, he comes home one day, walks in the door, and you're just feeling wistful and you articulate your wistfulness and say, sweetheart, I can't think of the last time you bought me flowers. Blah, blah, blah. I can tell you what he's thinking. He's got, slap his forehead and go, oh, good grief. So we, this guy turns around, goes out into his car, goes driving down the road, looking for that people that park by the road, you know, and sell roses for five bucks. You know, and, uh, you know, so you go into the guy with the, the roses and, and you say, okay, what you got? And the guy says, well, I've got this group, this this set of roses that have been sitting around for a week for five bucks, or I got a nicer bunch for a fresher bunch for ten bucks. Or I've got a really nice bunch with baby's breath and everything for 20 bucks. Not that I've ever been to these guys. (laughs) So your husband looks at him and says, well, give me the $5 one. So he comes, grabs it, comes back and goes here. How do you look at him at that moment? I can tell you how you look at him. You are an unworthy servant. You have done only that which you ought to have done. You've done the minimum standard. Because what a woman wants, and I'm not a paragon when it comes to this, believe me. If my wife were here, she would testify. But as a pastor, when I was a pastor... You know, one of the things that pastors are asked to do on a regular basis is obviously do funerals, sad events. But when I would be at a funeral, I would see the flowers. And I would think to myself, flowers, I should get my wife flowers. So I would stop at the florist on the way home and buy her some flowers. And I'd come walking into the house. Now, my wife would know where I had been. And I'd come in with flowers, and she'd look at me, and she'd go, where did you get those? And I'd say, well, sweetheart, I was at a funeral today and thought of you. <laughs> if she were sitting here, she'd say, that, that's exactly right. That's what he said. So I'm not a paragon when it comes to this, guys. But I think I have come to learn what it is that a woman is wanting of the one who says she lo- he loves her. And that is, she is wanting him to... Think of her without him having, to, without her having to ask him. That is to, and for her it's a very practical thing. She wants an expression that he's thinking of her. So it can be, it, men are into grand gestures. We'd rather buy three dozen roses once a year so we don't have to think about it the rest of the year. We'd rather buy the twelve-fold card with, you know, the epistle of mushy things in it. So we, just once a year, so we don't have to think about it. That covers all the, that's birthday, anniversary, you know, that's everything. Valentine's Day, we, Mother's Day, it's got covered. Twelve-fold card. Or what a woman wants is an expression without her having to ask. Without her having to raise a flag and let him know that, hey, you know, Valentine's Day is coming up. My birthday's coming up so that he would, on his own, think of something and give her something that shows that he's thinking of her. Ladies, I need a little help here, am I right? There you go. In fact, you guys, you should be taking notes on this. Because we are often clueless when it comes to this. I remember when I was in seminary back in the Ice Age myself, I remember our church used to go out calling in our neighborhood, and I remember as a part of that, I visited a couple. He was a construction engineer for La Quinta Motor You all know La Quinta. And he was built like a boxcar. He had big, big, broad shoulders, about six foot five, handsome guy. She was an executive secretary for a major law firm in Dallas, Texas. And she worked as a security uh, person for Neiman Marcus in the evening. And she looked like Neiman Marcus. She, she would just a very sharp lady. So here's this very sharp couple. And I remember going and visiting with them. They ended up coming to our church, so I got to know them. But when I was just visiting with them, sometimes sitting there on their sofa, they're sitting across from me, they would start to fight with each other. And I learned things that no seminary class could teach me watching these two. As their conflict with each other would ramp up, scale up, and it was like a Chinese ping pong match. It started slow, but it picked up ferocity and speed Until finally, after a a certain length of time, the ICBM doors flew open and the Minuteman missiles got launched. And guys, you know what those are? Those are the things that she's been mad at you for for the last 20 years. That she's still mad at you for. And I remember for her, it was back when... She was going in for gallbladder surgery, to have her gallbladder removed. And back then, it was a big kind of semicircular scar. It was a serious surgery, cutting a lot of things uh, that you were in the hospital for a number of weeks to heal from it. Some of us are old enough to remember LBJ showing us his scar. Uh, So it was serious surgery. And she was going into the hospital for this surgery, and he, like an idiot, said, do you want me to come and visit you when you're in the hospital? To which she replied, in woman speak, guys, you know woman speak? Woman speak is where she doesn't want to make it a command. So she says, you don't have to if you don't want to. Unfortunately, he heard it in man-speak, which is, you don't have to if you don't want to. So he didn't. And she was still, you hear the voice of the women going, oh, good night. But she was still so angry that he didn't do it, but it was the point of not wanting it to be a command because then when he did it, he was demonstrating that he loved her. Because if she commanded it of him and he did it, he's an unworthy servant. He has done only that which he was commanded. So I think Jesus tells these little stories. To show that if you do only that which you are commanded, you are an unworthy servant. If you think of your Christian life, and some of us, we've lived in a culture, a Christian culture, that has emphasized, and hammered on us with obedience. Folks, hear the biblical truth. Obedience is the minimum standard. With God. What God is looking for. Is lovers. Not slaves. He's looking for people. Who wake up in the morning and think. Lord. I I just want to bless you today. I want to show you how much I love you. I want to do something for you. That would delight your heart. That you would never ask me to do. You start to relate to God like that. You will take your faith to the next level. Say, quick, I've heard you. But I'm not sure I see that in this passage. And I think Luke knew we might not see it. So he told the next story, and it's a familiar one. I'm not going to unpack the whole thing, lest you all are already looking at your watches and say, you're right, quick isn't your, you know, defining the way you preach. But it's the story of the ten lepers. And ten lepers cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. And he says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them turned around and came back and fell at his feet, praising God. And Jesus, in verse 17, says a very interesting thing. He says, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? I think the disciples are going, well, but, 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 but Lord, they're, they're doing what you commanded them to do. Check the person next to you right now. Make sure they're awake, because if they missed everything else that I've said, they don't want to miss this. It is very clear from this story of the ten lepers that what Jesus commands and what Jesus wants but doesn't command are two different things. And you will never... Grow or take your faith to the next level until you get beyond the minimum standard and start to think about your relationship with Jesus in terms of love. I want to do things for Jesus because I love Him and I, the minimum standard means nothing. I want to demonstrate how much he matters to me on a daily basis. And if you can make that decision to forget the minimum, not forget the minimum standard, keep the minimum standard, but never let it define your life, your relationship with God. You start thinking as a lover does, delighting him, pleasing him, spending time with him. Doing things for him that he would never command you to do. You do that before you go out these doors. Take your faith to the next level. Let's bow together for prayer. Oh, Lord, you need to forgive us for being people of the minimum standard. Forgive us for all the times when we have looked to just perform at the minimum standard. Forgive us for all the times we thought of our relationship with you just in terms of obedience. Lord, help us to always obey what you've commanded. But, oh, let us understand that what you're looking for is not slaves. You are looking for lovers. And that living hope might be a church filled with lovers of God. Who are doing things not because they've been commanded, but because they want to demonstrate how much they love you. Do that, Lord. And may the glory that shines from this place impact this community. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.